welcome to the Queen's Church Sermon Podcast. Our church is being built on two vision statements. Jesus is our passion and love is our mission. We hope this message leads you to Jesus and that next week you'll join us in person to experience God's love through this local church. You can follow us online at qns.church. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, worship team, for reminding us of all we are in Christ Jesus and challenging us to surrender all that we have. We have a special treat today. Uh, my good friend, Mac Gervais, has come all the way from Houston with his family to bring the word this morning. Uh, Mac and I have known each other for about 14 years, and he has been a minister of the gospel for 15 years. He is currently doing exactly the same thing that we are doing right now in Queens. He's doing it in West Houston. He's starting a church. He's at the place we were about one year ago. So they're about a year from getting to weekly services. You guys know how that feels, some of you who a year ago were with us. Um, so welcome him and be prepared um, to hear from God, to be challenged by God, and to continue our series of portrait. Let's give him a round of applause as he comes up. All right, well, good morning, everybody. I'm, I'm definitely glad to be here in Queens, New York, all the way from Houston, as he, Larry has said. Um, we have known each other a long time. Obviously, um, I'm here. My wife is here today, Grace. Uh, we brought our six-month-old with us. We've got three kids, uh, four now and under, so four, two, and three. I think I got a picture of my fam somewhere up there. Boom, there you go. My little biracial angels up there, amen. There you go. So yeah, Jaden, Aria, and Judah is here with us today. And um, uh, man, it's it's been crazy to kind of uh, go through that. But yeah, as he said, I've been doing ministry in Houston for uh, quite a bit of time. Most of my ministry in Houston has been spent um, doing multi-ethnic, multicultural ministry, trying to bring the nations together to worship Christ. Um, Houston is, uh, if you're a praying person, Houston is an is a interesting place to do ministry. It's the most diverse city in the U.S., seventh in the world, and um, where we are in West Houston uh, is, is an incredible amount of diversity in what you see. We have the Energy Corridor, which has 30 or so of the largest oil companies there and tons of people from overseas who are on work for about three to five years. And then we also have, less than three miles from that, a large refugee relocation center. And so you go from mansions, James Harden lives in that part of town, to uh, dirt poor, um, just got here, uh, Im uh, immigrants struggling. And so it's a very interesting environment to do ministry in, but God is definitely at work. That being said, I've also known Larry, as he said, for 14 years, I met him 14 years ago um, at Houston Baptist University where we were um, in college and we uh, became friends fairly quickly. Now I did meet him and I said this, amen, yeah. Yeah, we looked, uh, we looked very different. Um, got a little more hair on my head there. Larry, I don't know what he was doing. Um, Actually, I do know what this what what he was doing. I, I say this, uh, Larry. I met Larry because he was friend. I was friends with somebody else uh, that he was dating at that time. Oh yeah. Huh. In fairness, I've said this over and over again. I met Lindsay, and uh, and I was like, dude, what are you doing, man? Um, at least in my head, I couldn't say that because that girl was my friend. But um, I say this to say that when they got back together and watched that relationship blossom, uh, it was it's been incredible to kind of watch them and. 
uh, what was that, 10 years ago or so when you, uh, when you uh, moved from Houston to New York. I remember the last time that we hung out and, uh, and getting ready to see him hop in a car and, and move his stuff and getting in my car and sitting in silence for about 10 minutes, uh, realizing that uh, one of my best friends, like a brother in ministry, uh, has gone. But to see what God is doing here in Queens is very exciting. Um, and and we're, we have been praying for you guys uh, from Houston for quite some time now. Uh, for several years, as God has put this uh, vision with Larry, we've been praying for you guys, and we're excited to be here at Queens Church. Uh, that being said, if you have your Bible, you can turn to the book of Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 20. Yeah, 17 through 20. I should probably open up my Bible while I'm talking. We're going to read these verses. Um, and I encourage you to leave your Bible open throughout the course of, of this message as we'll keep coming back to it. But in verse 17, it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Uh, God, we just thank you for this day. And Lord, as we spend time here today in your word, we pray that your spirit would illuminate truth to us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to focus that whatever burdens we brought in today that would hinder us from hearing from you, we pray that you would remove those. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so one of my uh, favorite TV shows right now, I got into it, I'm not going to lie, like maybe five weeks ago. It's called The Good Place. Um, and then I, uh, I binged all three seasons in the last like three weeks. And actually, I've been done for like two and a half weeks. I caught up to everything that's live on TV right now. Uh, but it, it's a show that really speaks to me. Uh, one, because they deal with a lot of heavy philosophy, and I'm a philosophy guy. And secondly, because it's just funny. But the basic concept of the show is there's Kristen Bell. You might know her as Veronica Mars or Anna from Frozen. Um, but Kristen Bell, she's uh, playing this character who has died and wakes up, and she uh, is in heaven, or they call the good place. Um, and as they're taught, the, the Michael, who runs their, their section of the good place, uh, their city that they're living in, uh, begins to talk to her about her life achievements, it becomes very clear to her that she has the same name as somebody else and she doesn't actually belong in the good place. Like, she's, so they've confused her with somebody else. But she doesn't want to go to the bad place because who wants to go to the bad place? So she's like trying to turn herself into a good person while uh, being in the good place and knowing that she kind of took somebody else's slot in the good place and uh, all the things that kind of ensue with that. But I say that to say that all of us are going to die at some point in time, and as we near death and we live our lives, we begin to focus at some point in our life on what is the sum total of our lives. In the show The Good Place, there's actually an equation that they use to uh, total up your good and bad deeds and give you a qualitative score on how you lived your life. 
And while I don't believe that there's an equation per se that can do that, I do believe that all of us at some point in time will take an account of our lives and try to figure out, well, is the life that we lived actually worth it? Did we actually do good? And most of us, no matter whether or not we're a skeptic in the room or been a Christian for a long time, use words like good, and that uh, supposes a lot of things. When we use the word good, it means that we, whether we realize it or not, we're affirming that there are some things in the world that are absolutely true and absolutely wrong. Like when you use the word good, that is good. That means that good isn't just some intangible thing, but it, it's something that's real and can be understood and known. Philosophers have argued back and forth over the centuries about is there good and where does good come from? And for our purposes, you've been in this portrait series studying the Sermon on the Mountain. And for us that look at the Bible, what we see is that Scripture says that the ultimate good is Jesus. And that we look to Jesus to understand what is true, what is right. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is setting the standard of how we understand good, bad, what is right, what is wrong, and he's telling us to look at him. And here's the truth. If you want to know what good is, then look at Jesus. Jesus is the portrait, the image of what is good and what is right. Last week, you guys, I, I, I made sure that I listened to the sermons uh, and uh, kind of following along where you guys have been. And last week, you guys were talking about uh, Jesus being telling, telling us that we are the salt and the light of the world. Like this incredible high calling that we have or standard that he's holding us to, that we are literally light in dark places and salt, not just bringing flavor, but preservation to the world. And that might seem like a tall task. And in this passage, Jesus then begins to transition in verse 17 through 20. And the Sermon on the Mount, you're, you're going to jump into this stuff over the next couple weeks. But, but these next three verses that we're, we're studying here today are, if anything, the thesis of which everything else that Jesus is going to say stands upon. Like, if you don't understand, in particular, verse 20, which we'll get to that in a second, you're not going to understand why he begins to talk about things like anger and divorce and adultery and all these other kinds of things. And they need to be understood within the context of what he says there. So, this morning, we're going to jump into three things that Jesus shows us. Three things that Jesus shows us. The first one is this, is Jesus shows us that he knew his mission. Let's look at these verses again in verses 17 through 19. It says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, you have to understand what's happening here. Jesus is talking. He's, he's, he's helping people understand. We just heard the Beatitudes, and now he's calling them salt and light. And in this, the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, began to think or began to want to put the charge towards him that he was taking the old law that they had been following that was given to Moses in the Old Testament. You can find in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, 
Numbers and Deuteronomy. He's thinking that he's just trying to take all of the things that, w- that have been said by the prophets and throw them away. And so the first thing that he does is begin to clarify his mission. I didn't come to get rid of all those things. I came to, to, to fulfill those things. That word fulfill in the Greek means to complete or to accomplish. And so Jesus is saying that everything that you've understood and been following, that your forefathers have, have, been, uh, have been following for 1,500 years, I am the completion of those things. Like, I know why I've come, and I've come to make these things whole and finished. He makes this statement in verse 18 that until the second coming, not one part, dot, iota. And he's, that, that word iota is like the smallest word in the Greek alphabet. And when he talks about the dot, that's like the smallest stroke in the Hebrew uh, uh, writing And so he's saying that, like, literally, it doesn't matter whether you're reading this in Greek or in Hebrew. Like, everything that has been written before is still in effect today. Now, that is intense. That's extremely intense. And almost daunting. Like, like literally, that everything that the prophets spoke from the Ten Commandments on over like not one of those things has ceased to apply in this moment. Now, what, what do we understand then about the law? These first five books of the Bible. In them, we find one, a couple things. One, there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament. About 248 of them are positive, like do this. And 365 of them are negative, don't do this or abstain from this. Like, every single one of those 613 laws, the people are responsible for keeping. And, and if that sounds over, overwhelming and daunting to you, like, how do you even keep track of all those laws? That's the point. You can't. Like, like that's the point that Jesus is making. Like, the law was meant, once you saw what perfection looks like, the whole point is that I can't be perfect. And, and the law was meant to, to push the nation of Israel to begin to hope for a better day. That some would wear down the line. They wouldn't have to sacrifice lambs and be bound by these rules. Jesus would accomplish by living a perfect life. The only person who could actually keep all of these things. Living the life that you could not live and then paying the, pencil, the penalty that you could not pay. And then rising from the dead and giving you new life in him. He's the fulfillment, the accomplishment of all of these things. Like that's what Jesus came to do. Now, for a lot of us in this room, we often don't like to think of ourselves as bad. I know I don't necessarily. I know when I talk to my kids, they don't normally think themselves as bad. And I believe that there's great sincerity in that, but sincerity doesn't mean that you're moving in truth and life. It reminds me, back when I was a kid, I have an older brother. He's almost three years older than me. Right now, he lives in Los Angeles with his wife and and kid. He's a chef out there. But Back in the day, before he knew how to cook and we microwaved everything, we used to play games. And I remember we lived in this apartment complex in, in, uh, in, in West Houston. 
Um, and uh, way back in the day, late 80s, um, Houston's First Baptist sent some missionaries to come live in our apartment complex and tell people about Jesus, and they would start this little after-school kids club tutoring kind of program thing with Bible stories that were being taught, and so we would kids club every Thursday at four, and and then we would, you know, learn Bible stories, do homework, and then leave, and so one day after kids club, we were all playing. I was probably about six years old. My brother's like eight, Um, and I remember we're playing, and you know the way kids are. Um, When you're playing games, like, you just pick your favorite superhero, whatever it is, and then you've got their powers, so we're playing this game of tag, and I remember running up some stairs uh, in our apartment complex, and I got to a dead end, not really smart of me to turn that way, and people coming up, they're they're going. And then I remember my brother had ran up some other stairs um, that I could kind of see him from, and he also ran into a dead end. As for me, to me it was just a dead end. I'm done. What do you do? I guess I'm going to get tagged. That's it. My brother, on the other hand, uh, his name's Duke. Uh, Duke had a very different idea. Duke stood up on the railing on the second floor of this apartment complex, and then he said, I'm Superman. And then he proceeded to jump off the second floor, and he, he did the Superman pose, you know, like that was his thing. Now, here's the part that's crazy about it, is that in my mind at like six years old, when my brother said, I'm Superman, and then he jumped, I was like, oh, he's good. Now I got to get out of my... Like, because I, I really believed he was going to fly. Like, that's the way that it was. And so my brother jumps off the second floor, um, and then he did not fly. He immediately begins to drop to the ground. Now, the other part of this story, it's a little gross, but uh, the apartment had just cut down this tree, and there was a tree stump sitting right in the middle of this uh, pavement. My brother went chin first into a tree stump. Oh, it's disgusting. Yeah, you know, blood everywhere. It was, it was gross. Uh, had to get rushed. I remember coming home and trying to tell my mom, oh my gosh, Duke is, is bleeding, and all this kind of stuff you could see inside his face. It was gross. You know, like stitches the whole nine yards. Now, the reason why I tell you that story isn't necessarily to gross you out, but this is that like my brother and I believed with great sincerity that if he called out the name Superman and then jumped, that he would fly and assume the powers of Superman. But sincerity doesn't lead to truth. And actually, while he was very sincere in what he did, he actually ended up busting himself and almost killing himself. And for us in life, just because we're sincere in our life pursuits doesn't mean that we're actually doing good. And what the law shows us is that in your best attempts, no matter how good you try to be, it's just not good enough. That's the second point for us today. The first one is that Jesus shows us that he knew his mission. The second one is that our righteousness or our goodness isn't good enough. Like it's just not good enough. You can try over and over and over and over again, but it's not good enough. Verse 20, this pivotal verse in this passage, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a loaded statement. This is a big deal, what Jesus says here, for a couple different reasons. The first one falls into this point, our goodness isn't good enough. Now, it's very easy on this side of history to look at the Pharisees and to just kind of hate on them. And these evil, legalistic people that had their rules and condemned other people, all this other kind of stuff. But uh, if we do that, we're, we miss out on what's actually happening here. Look, in first century Jerusalem, you kind of had four major groups within society. 
One of them is the Essenes. They're kind of like these uh, religious uh, hyper-spiritualists. They lived out in the desert. Um, they believed all of God's word, and they wanted Jesus, God to come and have his second coming and reign in the new kingdom. And so they would uh, starve themselves, you know, fast a lot. They would uh, not, not have a lot of uh, fancy clothing and things like that. And they lived out in the woods doing their own thing. That's them. That's a very simple summarization of, of these people. Uh, the second one is the zealots. Now, one of the things that we forget, and you got to understand what we're, what we're looking at. When Jesus was born, he was born into a Jewish world under occupation. Like, like his entire life, like as a kid, he would have been walking down the streets and seeing Roman soldiers beating people. He would have seen them taking advantage of folks. He would have seen them stealing, but they could because they were the dominant power occupying these people. And the Jewish nation would, would sit there and just say, one day God's going to set us free. One day it's not going to be this way. One day we'll have freedom and we won't have to be under these foreign invaders who, who, who come against us with the sword and the spear and take all of our stuff and beat our children and women. And so there was a group of people called the Zealots, the revolutionaries, the kind of people that don't just beef about that in circles. They're like, let's not just talk about it. Let's be about it. Let's grab swords and be this insurgency fighting back against them. At least two of Jesus' disciples were considered or believed to be a part of this group. The third group that we have are the Sadducees. These are political leaders. These guys only believed in the first five or so books of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in supernatural things. They didn't think the dead would rise or anything like that. They were political leaders. They would, they would uh, cozy up with the Roman authorities. And then you have the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are the, the religious leaders. They believed in all of the Old Testament. They did believe in the supernatural and God's ability to raise people from the dead. And together, the Pharisees and Sadducees made up what, the, what you see in Scripture called the Sanhedrin. So they're this ruling body over everyone. Now, why does this become important to understanding this verse? Is that in first century Jerusalem, the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they were literally the best from a moral perspective that their society could produce. Like when you looked at the Pharisees, you wouldn't have said like, oh, those jerks. You would have said, man, uh, it, it's kind of like you, you hear them and like, I'm Christian, but that dude, like he's, he's Christian for real. Like he's, he's on Jesus plus steroids, you know, like that, that's, that's what that is. Like, like that's who they were. Like, like the Pharisees were literally the best that could be done that, of, of what the world could produce. They knew all 613 of those laws, they could quote them back to you. They could quote the entire Old Testament from memory. Not just that. And they didn't just know the word. But they also had additional rules on top of that to make sure that they didn't break any of the 613 rules that existed. So they knew the 613, plus they added extra rules. Some theologians say somewhere close to extra 1,300 rules or so. Like these guys literally knew everything. So when Jesus is looking at them, I want you to consider, he's preaching this Sermon on the Mount, and he said, blessed are the meek and the poor and all that kind of stuff. Then he says, you're the salt and the light of the world. And then he gets to this point, he says, unless your righteousness, unless your goodness is better than the Pharisees, you won't get in. The room was like, oh. 
like, like they're not getting in, well, then, then nobody gets in. Like, like if these guys can't get in, then, then nobody's getting in. Like it was this incredibly difficult thing for the people to hear. That the, the best people that we could somehow, if we could go into a lab and make an engineer a person to be good, this is what they would be. And God looks at them and says, that's not good enough. That, that's painful. That hurts. And that's not just true for them. It's true for us here today. Because every last one of us, even though we like to think high of ourselves, every last one of us has fallen short of perfection. And in us falling short of perfection, that puts us in a very difficult position. Like, we want to get to the good place, but we, we, we've got this mixture of good and bad. And, and some of you are like, well, I'm not that bad. I mean, there are certainly people on the news that are far worse. I'm like, that's probably true. But let me, let, let's walk down this with me. I used to be a youth pastor, and we used to explain it to them like this. Um, so excuse my junior high uh, level illustration here. But uh, we would sit there and say it like this. Right now there's a cup of water. Imagine that's your favorite drink. Um, for me, for most of my life, it's been Sprite. So let's pretend this is a cup of Sprite. Uh, and then you take a second cup of Sprite and put it right here. But doesn't matter. Pick your favorite drink. Imagine that this drink is up here, and you got two cups of it. And then... For reasons that I can't really explain, I pick up one cup and I spit in it. And then I take a spoon, I mix that around. Ding, 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 ding. Good. And then I take the second cup and I spit in that one too. You're like, what are you doing, Mac? But then I say, hey, man, uh, drop some in here. And I go, you, you go, Puh. and then I start pushing this all around the room and we all spit in the cup, right? And then I put that in there and I go, ding, 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 ding. Uh, bon appetit, who's ready? And most of you in the room are like, I don't want either one of those. Like, there's this spit in the cup. And I'm like, hey, this one only has my spit in it. And you're like, yeah, but you spit in the cup. I'm like, okay, but it's got less spit than this cup. This cup has got everybody's spit. This cup just got one man's spit. Which one do you want to drink? And most of you, once again, unless you're just really gross, be like, I don't want to drink from either one of those cups. And the point is, it doesn't matter how much spit in the cup is in the cup. There's spit in the cup. And this is what our lives are like. It doesn't matter whether or not you've murdered somebody. The fact that there's spit in the cup of your life makes it unfit before God. So now we're in this position. Our goodness isn't good enough. I could sit there and take the spit in the cup and like there might be a spit in this cup, but what if I just pour more Sprite in here and kind of dilute that a little bit? Does that make it better? Like, Matt, it doesn't matter what you do. There's still spit in the cup. Doesn't matter how many good things I try to do. Once I've sinned, once I've fallen short of perfection, I can't dilute my life. There's still spit in the cup. So what do we do? The law shows us that we can never be good enough. We're trapped. We're in this difficult position. And Jesus' indictment here that unless your goodness is better than them, you won't ever get in. At first glance, it was one of the most debilitating, painful, uh, earth-shattering revelations that literally your society has been built upon the idea that these guys are it, and Jesus says, no, you must do better. Like, what do you do with that? I can tell you what you do with that. Part of the quintessential problem for the first century Jew is that they were looking towards other people 
as the portrait and standard by which they should live their lives. And what Jesus is doing here is like, stop looking at them. If you want to know what good is, look at me. Look at how I live. Look at what I say. Not just what I say, but look at how I live these things out and put what I say with what I do together. And that is the standard for good. So what does that mean for us? The third thing here today is that Jesus shows us that we need inward and outward change. It's not just an outward, I'm doing these things on the outside. There has to be an inward change as well. There are two ways of looking at this verse, and both of them are very difficult. The first one is Jesus looking at the Pharisees, these religious leaders that everybody thought were like the best of the best, and saying, that's not good enough. But the second thing, and the reason why Jesus indicts the Pharisees is because they did a lot of outward things, but they didn't have changed hearts. You've got to do more than just follow rules on the outside. Otherwise, you're going to miss out on the change that God wants to do on the inside. Consider the rules, the 613 rules that they were able to follow. The Ten Commandments, there's a movie named after that. Which is actually really, uh, sidebar, really a weird movie because it takes like forever before you actually get to the Ten Ten Commandments. I'm like, Charlton Heston, I like you, but they put like some weird romance thing between him and Pharaoh's daughter slash mom that's weird uh, and all this other kind of stuff. It's like a three and a half hour movie and then you get to like the last five minutes and boom, the Ten Commandments. I'm like, I don't think this is called the Ten Commandments. I don't think this should be. But anyway, I'm sorry, sidebar, a little distracted. Um, That being said, don't murder. You're like, I haven't killed anybody today. I'm doing all right. Don't steal. All my stuff is mine. I paid for it. I'm doing pretty well. Uh, don't lie on your neighbor. Like, mm, maybe. I don't know. Some of you, who knows? Honor your father and mother. You're like, I love mama. I love daddy. You know, like, I, I do those things. And then you move beyond the Ten Commandments, and it's like the other things as well. There's like stuff that you're not supposed to eat. They didn't eat it. Me and Larry were joking the other day, but we like just dawned on us like, man, Jesus never ate bacon. That's uh, really unfortunate. That's an amazing, amazing thing. I put that on a burger. We made bacon cheeseburgers yesterday. I was like, man, bacon makes everything better. They didn't eat pork and they didn't eat this and didn't eat that. And they did all these other kinds of things. And they kept all of these rules and they made extra rules. Because you're supposed to keep the Sabbath day uh, holy. And so they would, they would come up with rules like, well, you know, I'll cook my food on Saturday so that I don't do this on Sunday or, or Friday so that I don't do this on Saturday because Sabbath was Saturday. And they're doing all these kind of things. And, and, and they've created all of these rules. And yet somehow they've missed out on the most important one. Because the Pharisees and the people of that day were trying to somehow out of their own pride achieve goodness on their own. And when you look to yourself or to others to be the standard by which you live, you've turned somebody else into an idol. Now, why does, how does that come into uh, question here? Because the first commandment is don't have any other gods before me. 
Like, that's the first one. You followed 612 of them, but you missed out on the first one that I'm supposed to just worship God and God alone. Jesus synthesizes that just a little bit simpler in in the New Testament when he says the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So don't, don't have any other gods before me. And then love your neighbor as yourself. These guys had done these things on the outward, outside, but they didn't have a heart change on the inside. And if all you do is stuff on the outside and you don't worship God and have a change on the inside, then everything that you're doing is for nothing. Like that's ultimately what it comes down to. God doesn't just want us to do nice things for other people. He wants our hearts to change. He literally wants the way that you view others to be uh, channeled through the lens of who he is. That's what it is to do good. To love God with all that you have, with all that you are, and then to love others because of that. Now that might seem odd, But here's why it becomes important. Because the Bible tells us that we have been made in the image of God. When you begin to look at people as being image bearers of God, it changes how you treat people. It changes how you think. It changes what you say. It changes what you do. I want you to think about this, that God who created everything from stars and the sun and the moon to earth, the oxygen that you breathe, the laws of physics and thermodynamics, like the fact that we're like spinning right now and can't feel it, that's crazy. Like the God who created stars, an exploding ball of gas suspended in nothing, orbiting nothingness, this craziness, that that God then, after creating everything, drew in the dirt and breathed life into man and said, this is in my image. That God is the God that we worship. And when I view people as having inherent value because they're his, then I'm less able to blow people off. In Houston, I don't know how it works here in New York. I only visit some family occasionally that lives up here. But in Houston, like one of the ways that God convicts me about this regularly is we've got panhandlers on every corner trying to clean your window for your car. And it's so easy for us. It's a common thing. Like, my window isn't that dirty. A guy's coming. He wants to clean your thing. I was like, maybe if I look down, maybe he won't notice me. Oh, now he's cleaning it. No, 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 I don't, I don't need it. No, 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 stop, stop, stop. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And he's just like going at it. It's the red light. You're like, oh, now it's taking a while. How is this going to happen? And you just, as soon as the light turns green, just like, and you go. And the guy's like, hey, man, I cleaned your window. It was my quarter, whatever that is. So easy to just blow people off. It's so easy to do that with our friends and family. It's so easy to be so busy with work and to be meeting deadlines and crunch times and all that kind of stuff and then just to come home 
And for guys, this is a real struggle. Like, I just got done working. When I come in the house, I just need 30 minutes. Leave me alone. Don't want to hear about the day. Don't want kids in my face. Just want to be left alone so that I can unwind. Meanwhile, I'm putting blinders on people made in the image of God. But see, if you have a heart change, then the things that you do aren't just a sense of obligation. But because of our love for God, we begin to love others. It reminds me, not too long ago, of sitting there. Like I said, I've got three kids. We're crazy. Not for having three kids, but maybe for having them as close together as we had them. My son and my daughter are 16 months apart. Like Grace was seven months, or Judah was seven months old. Jaden, man, I don't know their names. Jaden... <laughs> Jaden was seven months old when we found out we were pregnant with Aria. So they're 16 months apart, less than a year and a half apart. It was pretty crazy. We had a 16-month-old and a newborn, um, and that was crazy. At the same time, we love them all. They're great kids. If they were here, you'd be like, oh, those are sweet kids. But the point is this, is that I, I remember uh, not too long ago I was talking to my son, and I told him to go to his bedroom and, and do something. I can't remember what it was, but I remember... Like, I told him to do it, and then he just started stomping. Now, we've got these wood floors in our house, and so I hear, slop, 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 slop. And I'm not going to lie. Um, you should know this about me. It kind of helps. My family's from Haiti. I was born here, uh, but Haitian parents don't really play. Um, it's, like a, it's like the sound of disrespect like triggers something on the inside, and then uh, island people just get very aggressive very quickly. And, and so I learned as a kid, uh, respect, you know, just do what they do. But, but for me, I, it was crazy. I heard him stomping, and it triggered, uh, even though I, I was born here, it triggered like this throwback island uh, feel for me. I was so mad. I was like, boy, come back here. And I remember having this conversation with him. Because I, I believe that when I, when in, in parenting, in every, every moment we have these opportunities to, to like teach them values. And so I remember looking at my son, and I'm like, look, man, it's not just enough for you to go do the things that I, I tell you to do. But if you're doing them with a bad attitude and defiance, like, like, then that's not it. That's not good enough. Like, I want you to obey me. But I also want you to have love in your heart when you're doing the things that I do. If I hear you smashing things around in your room while you're cleaning up, like that's not it. And then as I'm having this conversation with him, I begin to be convicted myself because how many times has God like asked me to do something and I did it kind of mad, stomping off to the side? Like, like I've got to have a heart towards God that's changed that leads me to love others and respond to them differently. We need an inward change, not just an outward change. Here's the hope for us this morning, slash almost afternoon. Like, on your own, you're not able to do good. Your goodness isn't good enough. But Jesus did not ask you to be good and to do good. He calls you to trust in him and to look to him to know what to do. The answer then is look to Jesus. 
the hope of the message that we hear about Christ and we took communion today isn't that you would somehow get a list of rules. I don't listen to this music. I don't watch these movies. I don't do this. I don't, this, if I don't cuss and I don't say all these kind of things, like, oh, I'm in trouble. And then somebody cuts you off on the road and you think, oh, and you know, like all of a sudden I'm done like that. No, that's not, that's not what Jesus is calling you to. He's not calling us to more works. He's calling us to faith in him. And for us to understand the heart and intent behind his word. And so for you here today, I believe that most of us are in one of two places. You either have put your faith in Christ and you have to daily make a choice to look to him in order to know how to live. Or you haven't put your faith in Christ and you're just trying your best to work it out. The answer for both people here today is the same. Look to Jesus. Jesus is the answer. He's the answer for all of your heartaches and pains. He's the answer for all of the questions on how to live and what to do. And over the next couple weeks, you'll begin to see how a life submitted to Christ affects literally everything about you. It changes how you view anger. It changes how you relate to your spouse. It changes how you relate to your friends. It changes everything that you do is filtered through this lens. But Jesus isn't telling you to do it on your own. He's saying, look to me, trust in me, and I will show you a better way. Every time you try to do things on your own, all you do is mess it up. But thanks be to God that Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we could never come close to. Thanks be to God that Jesus saw the spit in our cup and he poured that out and he filled it with himself. And now we can have peace with God you don't have to end today wondering, am I going to the good place? You don't have to live today trying to figure out some equation on, have I done this or that? You can just have faith and peace, knowing that Jesus has already paid the price for you. He already bought your ticket. All you've got to do is show up. And so we're going to continue to sing here today. There's going to be a time for you to respond, and my encouragement to you is this. Take a step back and think about your life, the sum total of who you are and what you've done in light of the goodness of Jesus. And then think about those words in verse 20. Unless your righteousness is as good as these Pharisees or exceeds the Pharisees, then it's not good enough. And once you come to the inevitable realization that, man, my goodness isn't good enough, I encourage you to just look to Jesus and take hope and put your faith in what he's already done. Let's pray. God, we thank you just for this day. And Lord, I know there are people here that don't know what they believe. They don't know where they stand. And God, I pray that they would find freedom here today. God, for all of us, we want to not just know 
what's good, but we want to do good. We don't just want to talk about it, we want to be about it, Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to that end, not just to talk about Jesus, but to do good towards others, fueled by our love and passion for who you are. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.